0: This is the Law and the Future of War podcast brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies.
1: The use of unmanned aerial vehicles or drones into armed conflict has been the subject of ongoing debate and the subject of a number of our interviews here at the Law and the Future of War podcast. They represent a number of challenges from a legal perspective. And indeed, potential technology developments about their use, such as the appearance of autonomous aerial weapon systems, has caused ongoing international debate and an alarming lack of consensus about their use and regulation. Today, we're joined by Paul Leshenko to discuss the broader implications of drone strikes in terms of politics and strategy, moral legitimacy of states' use of drone warfare, and his new book, Drones in the Global Order, published in December 2021. Paul is a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel and General Andrew Jackson Goodpasta Scholar at Cornell University, where he's pursuing a PhD in international relations. After commissioning as a military intelligence officer in 2005 from the United States Military Academy, he studied at the ANU as a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar and the U.S. Naval War College. He's also a Council on Foreign Relations term member and adjunct research lecturer for the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Sturt University. Paul, thanks so much for giving up your time to talk to us this morning. We're really excited to have you to talk uh, about drones and the global order.
0: Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to kind of share the depth and breadth of my research to your audience.
1: First up, what are the four waves of scholarship relating to the use of armed drones? And can you tell us a little bit about your book and the fourth wave?
0: Yeah, so um, I really appreciate this question, but I think it may be important uh, in the first case to kind of define what we mean by drone warfare. I find that this is a contested term, and it's helpful to define what we mean by the concept because, unfortunately, scholars have a tendency to use it in one way or the next. And really what this means is they focus on one aspect of countries' use of strikes as opposed to integrating what armed drones do, how they do it. And then, indeed, where they do it. And in the worst case, I think they're also guilty of assuming why states conduct strikes in the first place. They even have a tendency to to rarefy drone warfare to the platform itself, namely uh, the General Atomics MQ-9 Reaper, which is the most advanced drone in the uh, the world, uh, which is really a a form of what uh, Hugh Gusterson dubs the kind of drone essentialism. And I, and I think that defining drone warfare for another reason is important because it provides those non-expert observers kind of an intuit, intuitive definition of what it means to conduct strikes in these different strategic contexts. And then finally, I think for those of us who serve in the military, much like yourself, it's often the case that we see scholars conflate the nature and the character of warfare, although that we know that drones change nothing about the intensely human endeavor that warfare constitutes. And so a quick definition of drone warfare. So I think that it's important to understand that drones don't only kill, but they can watch and they can aid. And even so, drone warfare is often conflated with this concept of targeting killing. And by doing so, what I see is that scholars, they obfuscate the different purposes of drone warfare, which can be more about disrupting, destroying, or even defeating an enemy network. The how of drone warfare, which I just kind of outlined, is important because it informs um, how strikes are conducted. Some have related this to kind of peer or mixed forms of strikes. So the peer form is a focus on strikes uh, aside from uh, supporting troops deployed abroad, whereas the mixed form is the use of strikes in support of soldiers conducting patrols uh, in raids. And I think that focusing on how is important as well because it kind of shows us where these strikes have a tendency to take place. So Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, and elsewhere, your viewers will recognize as declared theater of operations, whereas these undeclared theater of operations, let's say Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia, are often not sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council, nor have substantial number of forces deployed on the ground. And so what we find is that the legality of these operations become quite contested. And then on the one hand, states, like the United States and others, will often flout these hus and bellum norms to include, let's say, just cause or proper authority, while also attempting to fulfill the so-called hus and bellum norms or justice in war to include distinction, especially non-combatant immunity. And so drone warfare, for me, in the first instance, is a lot more complicated of a process and concept than even experts will realize. And so in the book, we promulgate an original definition of drone warfare is a use of armed drones in concert with expeditionary forces to achieve both military and political objectives, limited or maximal, across the continuum of competition uh, and in conflict. And I think this is an important definition because it allows us to account for both the lethal and non-lethal aspects of drones, the diverse missions that they can conduct, and in what type of conflict, which can range from irregular warfare to urban conflict, To interstate war in both declared and undeclared theater of operations. Now, so having said that, this is the definitional that will anchor this conversation today. What are the four waves of scholarship that we address uh, in the book? Well, since 2002, as I I was reflecting on this, those conversations, scholars have contended with the unintended consequences of strikes in three predominant ways. The literature has evolved from studying the proliferation of drones to measuring their punitive effectiveness, to exploring their legal, moral, and ethical implications. And I'll briefly walk through these waves for your your audience to understand the contribution that we make for the the fourth wave here. And so those who focus on the first wave or or proliferation typically privilege a demand-side understanding of Proliferation as opposed to a supply side, which is to say they focus on states' interest in acquiring drones for any number of political, military, or social reasons. So the whole, uh, the so called guns and butter uh, argument, but also uh, the status that a state could potentially obtain for having drones uh, in the first place. Less uh, attention has been focused on, especially lobbying by these large scale US manufacturers, let's say, General Atomics, which creates. The MQ 9 Reaper for drone sales abroad, which have to be certified by the US Congress. Now, another anomaly within this proliferation debate is the the inattention that's spent on the proliferation of drones among non state actors, such as, let's say, the Islamic State or the Houthis uh, in Yemen. And this is an important concept, which is hard to contend with, frankly, because of the lack of data. But it's resulted in what some UN officials have identified as this so-called second drone age. And indeed, I think it's a real perverse set of circumstances that US military officials, such as the chief of our army, have identified in the recent past drones as the number one threat to US forces abroad. So if we transition to the second wave, which is the debate on effectiveness, this really focuses mostly on the impact of strikes for follow-on terrorist attacks. And in my reading of the literature and practice is equally contentious. So on the one hand, you have scholars like Brian Price who will argue that drone strikes are effective at decapitating religious organizations because they remove highly charismatic uh, leaders uh, that set organizational goals, visions, and help achieve results. But yet on the other hand, people like Jenna Jordan in a recent book contend that drone strikes really do nothing to contend with the grievances, political grievances, social grievances, economic grievances that give rise to political violence in the first place, and indeed in the worst case scenario, can actually exacerbate political violence. Within this debate, there is, strikingly enough, a lack of attention paid to the implications of drone strikes for civilian casualties as an equally important measure of effectiveness, which is both a strategic and moral imperative for countries that use strikes abroad, and I think we can touch upon this uh, going forward in this presentation. Now, if you're keeping count, we're on to the third wave, which is really a focus among scholars on the legal, moral, and ethical implications of drone warfare, and I have to be frank with you, Lauren, this is a sprawling literature. It's, it's really what some have called a dronorama of debate, uh, especially among ethicists, war theorists, philosophers, lawyers, uh, and the like. But I think if you take a close look at the readings, what you'll find is that there's really three central themes that benchmark this so-called third wave of literature. The first is this belief that armed drones in undeclared theater operations like Pakistan, Yemen, or Somalia are illegal. Plainly, that, that strikes here are not governed by international humanitarian law, Rather, that their legitimacy and legality is best adjudicated by international human rights law, where the basic right to life determines the permissibility of strikes. The second sort of thread in this third wave is that, unlike standoff projectiles like ballistic missiles and artillery and so forth, drones are thought to impose radically asymmetric risk that bridges into this notion of morally problematic killing because of a lack of reciprocal risk between combatants, as well as the right to self-defense. Now, of course, we have to realize that there are others that will contend that political officials are actually obligated to use strikes because of force protection considerations. And so this is what uh, Bradley Strouser terms the sort of principle of unnecessary risk. And then finally, the, the third thread of this, of this third wave is that because of these moral considerations, armed drones are, are thought to unravel the martial virtues uh, that soldiers are expected to uphold, especially courage. And as a result, Christian Enemark, a former researcher at the National Security College at the ANU in Canberra, has identified this notion of post-heroic uh, warfare. I would have to tell you that military practitioners will contend or caution that countries don't necessarily fight wars to be virtuous per se. But wars are fought to achieve a better and more durable peace. So what you have here is really three clear ways of scholarship and proliferation, effectiveness, and morality. And because of this, what you find is that some scholars will tell you that, well, the public has really lost a lot of interest in drones. But I think, if nothing more for the bot strike in Afghanistan on the 29th of August by the Biden administration, that resulted in 10 dead civilians, including women and children, as opposed to a suspected terrorist, or indeed the recent New York Times investigations that talk about considerable harm imposed on civilians during U.S. drone strikes abroad and throughout the better part of the global war on terror, this sort of notion that the public has lost interest in drones really distorts uh, the reality. And what I find is an outstanding research agenda that consists of a couple different things. I think will frame our conversation going forward today. The first is the literature does really little to understand the implications of drone warfare for global order. The second is that people, scholars, have done little to investigate how the social psychology of leaders or their cognitive frames, mental maps, the way they understand the world moderates their use of strikes in the first place. Scholars also don't explore how variation in the use of strikes the constraint of strikes, the actual consequences of strikes will constitute or have constituted what I have identified as a unique patterns of drone warfare across states, as well as the implication for the public's perception of legitimacy. And finally, I'm also interested in understanding what international approval through the UN means for perceptions of legitimacy. Not only that, but the mechanisms through which people will relate UN approval to legitimacy and support. So our book really only contends with one outstanding question, which is the trade-off of drone warfare for global order. It's it does so to, to advance the research and understanding of what we dub the fourth wave of scholarship to take us away from questions of proliferation, effectiveness, and morality into more social psychological um, and almost like kind of constructivist uh, theories of international relations.
1: Thank you for that very detailed but um, very digestible explanation of what is a, a, a massive amount of scholarship covering off on, on the use of drones in armed conflict. Um, I really yeah. liked the term drone, dronerama to describe, <laughs> <laughs> to describe, I guess the area that, um, that we at the UQ law and future of war are probably a bit more focused on from that, that legality and, um, and regulation perspective. Uh, but just taking this back to first principles again, why, why drones? Why are drones different from any other new technology that's been introduced into, into warfare? It, it's it's just a new piece of kit, isn't it? Why has it made such a, a difference or why do you think it needs to be elevated and treated differently?
0: it's yeah, a really good question. Before I, I, I tackle that one, I, I'm looking at my bookshelf here and I see that the Dromarama quote, quote for your readers and uh, your audience, rather, is from a book called Life in the Age of the Drone. Uh, in the age of drone warfare by Lisa uh, Parks and Karen uh, Kaplan. So that's a really good reference, I think, that your listeners could potentially tap into. So w- what is the controversy surrounding drones all about? It's a good question. It's really a complicated question uh, as well. And not only does the answer relate to variation in my estimate and how countries use, use constrain uh, drones to mitigate against these unintended consequences, but we have within empirical research this notion of heterogeneous uh, treatment effects, which comes down to dispositional variables among different observers of drone warfare, so people who actually observe strikes, uh, whether whether in a conflict zone or not, to include things such as their you know their gender, their education, their political ideology, and increasingly so preference for use of force abroad, as well as ethnocentrism. So these things really go into the ingredients for how public attitudes uh, are shaped. Now, having said that, I think that most ethicists who focus on drone warfare and the contestability thereof will claim that the public relates the permissibility of armed drones to the consequences of strikes, which is to say whether or not they adhere to international humanitarian law, including especially the protection of civilians, this notion of noncombatant immunity, which is codified, well codified into the just war tradition as a hoose and bellow, um, Bellum sort of uh, principle. My research is a little bit different, takes a little bit different of a track here to answer your question on controversy, because it shows that the public's perceived legitimacy of drone warfare is really conditioned by both its causal structure and its consequences. And so when we as researchers vary how countries use drone warfare, whether it's a tactic or a strategy And when we couple that with how strikes are unilaterally or multilaterally constrained by regional or international uh, organizations to protect against unintended consequences, we find clearly that this shapes how people understand the legitimacy of strikes. And in this case, I define legitimacy not as a compliance poll from international humanitarian law, but really as the subjective or relative beliefs that people have in the appropriateness of countries' wartime conduct. And so this causal structure, again, is framed by these use and constraint rules that tap into three different moral norms that include courage on the battlefield, that include force protection outcomes, that's, that is protection for soldiers, and finally sort of duties of care to civilians or noncombatant immunity, and then that people will draw upon these moral norms to frame their understanding of the legitimacy or not of strikes. And there's actually real empirical validity uh, within this so called middle range theory. And I can tell you that in, in an original survey experiment that I just conducted in March of 2021, among a convenient sample of approximately 600 American respondents recruited from the internet, it was the effect of the causal structure for strikes that was really very determinative of legitimacy, which is to say, when strikes are conducted as a tactic with multilateral constraints this was viewed as highly morally legitimate. And actually, it scored like a one point higher on a scale of one to 10 than if a country had adopted unilateral controls. Now, I don't know what a, what a seven or six or five or whatever means on this scale, but I do know that that's a significant jump in the sort of moral legitimacy outcome given this unique pattern of strikes, which again is a tactic with multilateral constraints. Another interesting piece of this is that the findings shed light on the fact that people or the public, they don't really just draw on one moral norm or the next to shape their understanding of legitimacy or the contestability or not of the practice. So they're not saying it's illegitimate just because of force protection reasons or because the result in casualties, but rather people will combine these moral norms in unique ways based upon how strikes are conducted as a tactic strategy or with unilateral or multilateral constraints. So in sum, I think that most people will draw the contestability of drone warfare to the civilian casualties that can result given the anticipated dividend of strikes, which is to strategically remove terrorists while protecting soldiers uh, and mitigating against uh, harm against civilians. My contention is it's a little bit more complicated than that. We actually have to take a look at variation in the use and constraint of drones to mitigate against these consequences, to understand why people will view it as contestable in the first place.
1: That's interesting to me as a lawyer, because the way that society views the use of a particular weapon system um, is what ultimately will lead to its regulation or its prohibition at international law. Um, International law is, Inextricably linked to international relations, as as you know, that I mean, the third wave is very closely linked to your fourth wave because yeah. you know one will one will lead or one will respond to the other. Um, and as far as moral legitimacy is concerned, of, of course, there's sort of the uh, the international law. Uh, doorway to get to the to considering that as part of what makes something legitimate or not through the martens clause which is something that is the subject of international debate about regulation of drones um so what what do you see as the outcome of this moral legitimacy discussion do you think that there is an acceptance for use of drones in a particular way and not in others or what what is that general um societal expectation for their use
0: Yeah, so let's talk about this question of legitimacy outside uh, of an armed conflict. Um, So the real interesting anomaly about social relational concepts such as law and legitimacy is that while they are related, as you stated, and often mutually constitutive, They don't have to be. In fact, my research shows this very clearly. And indeed, the empirical record on the use of air power generally in conflict, whether it's the Kosovo intervention or Libya, shows that often there's a certain degree of legitimacy in the case of the United States and and NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, conducting operations without UN approval. So without legal authorization because of this felt obligation among international society of states to do something to redress humanitarian crises, so-called responsibility to protect. And so whereas we want to believe that strikes outside of armed conflicts or undeclared of operations are illegal by way of international humanitarian law, uh, at least, at times there can be a certain legitimacy that people feel because they're doing something to protect the homeland or they're doing something to protect a region. And this is quite problematic because what I have found in my research, the generating puzzle of this entire debate is that you can have two countries, let's say the United States and France, that are both great powers by way of UN Security Council membership, they have large scale militaries, they conduct global operations, in large economies. These countries can conduct similar operations through similar platforms, let's say the MQ-9 Reaper drone in the same location, let's say Western Africa, with the same outcomes, let's say civilian casualties. But the implications for moral legitimacy or perspectives thereof will be drastically different. And so often, it's the case that French strikes will be viewed as more legitimate than US strikes whereas there may actually be grounding legally uh, for these operations abroad. And so as a generating puzzle, this sheds light on why the variation in use and constraint may be better for empirical leverage over inconsistencies or the mercurial treatment that the public has for the legitimacy of drone warfare, notwithstanding questions about legality in different declared or undeclared theater of operations. Does that make sense?
1: It, it does. And that, that sort of leads me to something else that I found interesting was that distinction between how one country might use the drones versus another, um, or if they are using them in a similar fashion, what the different expectations or re- international responses to that use is. So could you unpack a little bit further the the American and the French models for drone strikes and why you think or, or what your observation is about the difference in reception of, of use of drones by those two uh, two nations, just as uh, exemplars?
0: Yeah, I'll do so. I think it's important here to kind of um, also position this conversation within these unique patterns of drone warfare that I've discerned uh, in my research. So we're now in a position, as I stated before, you know, 20 years plus of using uh, armed drones for strikes abroad to focus on uh, different variations in the use of strikes abroad. And so let's just take use and constraint uh, clearly define a tactic as something that's uh, consigned to a battlefield like a patrol or raid, whereas a strategy is based upon a theory of victory, let's say decapitation of an enemy network to achieve an outcome, whether that's limited uh, war objectives uh, or total war objectives. Whereas on the other hand, you take a look at constraints, you don't constraints are nothing more than measures uh, imposed within a country to manage strikes abroad The example par excellence is likely going to be Obama's presidential planning guidance that was implemented, officially at least, in May 23rd of 2013 after a speech at the NDU, a National Defense University in Washington, D.C. And this really may strike approved based upon the near certainty of no civilian casualties, right? So this is the sort of unilateral constraints, whereas the multilateral constraints, I think, clearly is related to either UN approval or regionally based approval that would impose measures that are externally opposed on states that other countries can actually account for in conversations and targeting approvals and process fees, right? So here's the use and constraint rules clearly defined. Now, when you bring these together in a simple, we call in political science research two by two, what you see is four clear patterns. First is This hegemonic use of strikes by the United States, Mm -hmm. which is to say the use of strikes as a strategy with nothing more than unilateral constraints. And this is interesting because you can see broad continuity in the arc of drone warfare use from 2002 to present across different presidential administrations of different parties. So think about that, right? So we have Republican parties that are more adept at intervening abroad to support vital national security interests, whereas maybe, on balance, Democratic presidents are more interested in using diplomacy and consensus building to achieve uh, interest abroad. The second sort of pattern is this notion of aerial occupation, which Dan Bernstetter from the University of California in Irvine, who's a well-known war ethicist, will talk about. And this is really the use of a drone strike as a strategy, but with multilateral approval. And I think we clearly see this pattern of drone usage within conflicts such as Afghanistan and Iraq. And indeed it begs questions about the social, the psychological and the economic implications that frankly aren't contented enough within the literature because we're more focused on the effectiveness in terms of terrorist attacks and civilian casualties. I have this notion of a predatory sort of pattern of strikes which is the use of strikes as a tactic with only unilateral constraints. And this is really the most problematic I believe modality of strikes because it literally, Lauren, flies under the radar. And it gets to this puzzle of why you can have countries that use strikes such as Turkey or others, but yet they're not held accountable to the same legal and moral standards, even with the unintended consequences of civilian casualties like the United States. And this sort of pattern is often unfolded in irredentist disputes. So let's say the conflict in Nagora Korba in, uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan recently but also in other cases to include India and Pakistan in the the contested region of Kashmir. And then finally, we have this notion of institutionalized strikes, which is the use of strikes as a tactic, so like a patrol or raid, but with multilateral constraints and approval through the United Nations and or regional organizations such as the Shahal 5 in Western Africa. So this is the notion of a French model of drone warfare. And this notion of a French model of drone warfare is actually fairly established within the literature among defense intellectuals for the use of unmanned unmanned, uh, aerial vehicles. The problem, however, has been that no one has ever empirically validated it through a research design, let's say, like survey experiments. And so in a cross-national survey that I recently conducted among a representative representative sample of, let's, let's say, I think it was 1,800 American in French respondents, I found that the French respondents actually prefer the tactical use of strikes with multilateral constraints, which they in- endorse unconditionally or regardless of civilian casualties. And so this is the French model, which is empirically validated for the first time within the scholarship. And more interesting still is that when confronted with a randomized treatment for this model, and again, these French respondents aren't really cued into the fact that uh, it, it is the French model, What I find is that they can actually identify this model as such, which will increase the legitimacy score a whole point, which is really significant uh, given the numbers I'm talking about in my statistical uh, analysis. This is quite different from the Americans' preference for the use of strikes strategically, but with constraints that are conditioned on the unintended consequences, in this case, clearly civilian deaths. And it's an outstanding question that I can go into, if you want me to, about why French respondents, vis-a-vis American respondents, based upon America's prolific use of strikes, would prefer the use of strikes tactically with multilateral constraints. It's quite a fascinating question, which I can canvass if you want me to.
1: Yeah, I think that'd be interesting. And I think it'd be helpful as well for um, for our listeners and for me, actually, if you could describe what some of those multilateral versus unilateral constraint options or mechanisms and processes look like.
0: Yeah, so when we talk about the sort of constraint uh, rule, really what we're talking about is the obligation for a state to protect against civilian casualties. And so the empirical or observable implications of this Uh, Are any number of things to include consensus uh, in the UN for a very controlled and restraint application of strikes. So talk about different approval processes across echelons of command, whether that's tactical, strategic, uh, or operational, uh, really. It includes things such as a daily battle rhythm, uh, which is practitioner jargon uh, to say just you know meetings that occur frequently uh, that have to do with things such as target uh, identification, intelligence uh, that relates to target identification, consequences of targeting if things go awry. In other words, the wrong uh, target is actually prosecuted. And then ultimately what we're talking about is a kind of consensus-based targeting board where decisions would be vetted Uh, and approved in concert with the targeting country. And so as you talk about operations within Shahal conducted by France, one, these operations have been proved by the UN Security Council resolution, uh, which is actually longstanding. And there's been several additions and updates to that resolution uh, since the early 2000s that give the French military the reign to conduct strikes that would mitigate against sort of humanitarian crises, Uh, that would target terrorists uh, while protecting civilian casualties. So this is kind of the macro level of the observable implication here. At a a lower level, so let's say operationally, you're going to have sort of situational awareness and intelligence sharing among French uh, and Shahal 5 contributing country military leaders that would give legitimacy and support to operations, whereas they might actually be construed in a different era as like a post-colonial legacy, just given France's long-standing participation within Northern Africa and Algeria, of course. And then finally, tactically, you really kind of have partnership at almost the analyst level uh, for these strikes abroad. So in the case of French strikes in Shahal, it's really clear based upon public statements from political leaders in the United States and military officials that the United States provides intelligence sharing and support to these operations. But at the same time, since we're talking about sovereign territory for especially Mali, where preponderance of these several dozen strikes are taking place, if not all of them, there's going to be analyst exchange between these different militaries that would allow officials to understand that the intelligence has been vetted, the targets are sound, and the strike should be taken. And so those are kind of the, the sweeter host of and observable implications for what the multilateral constraint rule as I've dubbed it, uh, will do uh, to enhance the legitimacy of these operations.
1: That's really helpful. Um, thank you for that. And I think what all of this has just revealed is how complex the regulation and use of these systems are, and noting, of course, that context is everything when we're talking about um, use of technology. Um, but just quickly, because I, I'm just conscious of the time, um, just before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask what your thoughts are then on. The next wave of drone technology, um, looking at autonomy as um, as a, a game changer again, in response to how drone warfare may operate. Um, speaking of Turkey, you know the recent KAGU two um, drone use in the in the Syrian um, UN report is something that a lot of people have been looking at um, as far as what to expect next for drone warfare. Uh, what are your views on? the autonomous drone systems and what do you think that means for your research?
0: Yeah, so it's a really good question. And one that was asked recently a, on a piece that came out uh, in a news report about this notion of a second drone age and what this means for proliferation. I think this gets back to the heart of the matter for our book, which we didn't unfortunately have a lot of time to discuss, which is the implications of drone warfare for global order. You know, this is a contestable concept. We define it as really a pattern of relations between states that allow us to achieve stability, prosperity, and security. And we define it based upon four different material and normative elements to include hierarchical international society, sovereignty as the uh, purpose of good or outcome of global order, um, international humanitarian law, uh, and then finally, the fusion of capability. And so what this framework suggests is that while drone warfare may be perceived as coercive in nature to stabilize global order. And indeed, most uh, politicians that are interested in use of force abroad will speak in terms um, of global order. We see this clearly with Ukraine uh, and Russia at this point, that you know this threatens legitimacy, um, but the impacts are actually more complicated uh, than that. And so what we actually see is that where where drones may be viewed as like entrenching hierarchical international society. So that's that's really the United States' position globally. Well, while they may be viewed as breaching sovereignty for states, while they may be viewed as eschewing international law or encouraging broader proliferation, there actually are times when drones can reinforce global order. And so my supervisor at Cornell University, Professor Sarah Kreps, has noted in a recent co-authored piece that drones actually provide a resp- responsive approach to humanitarian intervention for the purpose of responsibility to protect. Indeed, they did so in Libya in 2011, which people like Alex Bellamy at UQ, as well as Tim Dunn and Rue Smith and Andrew Phillips will say crystallized the norm of R2P. And so to enjoy the positive return on investment from drones, indeed, the appeal for drones in the first place... What we require is really better management of drones that we lack at this point. Now, there are regulatory measures that exist for drones. And one of these, the flagship regime is a missile technology control regime. And this was established in 1982 to manage the proliferation of ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons abroad and has since been retrofitted to account for what we call armed and networked drones that can carry more than a 1,000 pounds of armaments, can fly for long durations, and can stay in the air at very high altitude. The problem with these regimes, to include especially the missile technology control regime, is that they lack any teeth or enforcement mechanisms. And additionally, great powers, to include especially the United States, are often the biggest violators. So under the Trump administration, what we saw was stepping back from the missile technology control regime and these informal consensus-based measures to account for proliferation out of the desire to increase foreign military sales by companies like General Atomics. So at this point, General Atomics can directly negotiate with countries like India for military sales to the tune of billions of dollars. So what we need right now, which is what one former United Nations official recommends is a wholly different proliferation regime or manage, uh, managerial regime that would account not necessarily, I believe, for the, the 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 platform itself. And so the end item, the actual drone itself, but the additive technology that would go into the drone. Because the real challenge we have with proliferation among non-state actors especially is this notion that you would recognize from your experience in the military of commercial off-the-shelf capabilities that you can buy ready-made Drones for cheaper dollars than General Atomics will sell its million dollar platforms for. And this is the real asymmetry of force, which is a challenge that US military leaders and indeed probably all Western militaries have identified going forward. So, in sum, I think we need to put our money where our mouth is and identify an additional regime that focuses on the additive technology for drones versus the end item to redress proliferation among not only states, but non state actors going forward.
1: That's a really interesting point because, as as you say, um, and I think as as we heard John Blackson say recently, the cat's out of the bag when it comes to drones as something that is readily available to um, military forces and non-state actors alike. Whereas looking at autonomy, that is you know a, an expensive bespoke system, even though you know autonomous capabilities are, are pretty much everywhere these days. They are just something that gets plugged onto to a, a platform to make them. Uh, different. So I think that's... Yeah, a- can
0: I just mention something real quick, Lauren, too? Because yeah. by far in this conversation, I may not have really touched upon the, the core of the question, which is fully autonomous weapon systems, or uh, what they call laws, lethal autonomous weapon system, which is to say fully autonomous. So we do not, in any military that I'm aware of, save maybe Turkish experiments, have a fully autonomous weapon system that can identify, track, locate, target, kill a target. Mm. Uh, What we have are semi-autonomous weapon systems that are programmed by operators, can fly on autopilot for a degree, but ultimately the decision to prosecute a target resides with a commander who underwrites risk in terms of soldier protection or harm, and then more importantly, especially given the moral obligation of remote warfare, civilian casualties. And so I think what we've seen here is a conflation of armed drones as they currently stand with this notion or fear of fully autonomous weapon system, which we actually don't see in the world. And so John and I write in the concluding chapter of my book about pushing the fourth wave of drone literature to contend with what people are really most concerned about, which is enhanced lethality, enhanced operational reach without human control, Mm -hmm. which is to say the autonomy that they bring to bear in a fully fledged sort of manner. We're just not there yet, and I think that Western military, certainly U.S. policy now has confronted this as potentially an abject harm to civilians especially and have promised not to weaponize this capability going forward. We'll see if that really pertains uh, in the future, but I think right now U.S. officials especially are very hesitant to embrace this technology for all the potential unintended consequences that we've talked about uh, in our conversation today
1: that's a really good point and clarification on, on those two things. And I think that's a really good way to look at it um, from from someone on, on my side who's sort of looking at the legal regulation of those weapon systems, um, looking at, you know, someone who's taking the view from a, a political scientist and psychosocial perspective is really important to balance that those considerations. So thank you very much for that. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Now, I would love to keep talking about, your work because it is fascinating and there's so many, so many things um, that I think would trigger great future conversations. So hopefully we can look into them sometime in the future, but um, I would just like to say thank you so much for your time this morning talking about, your work on drones and the global order. For those who do want to look into this area and this topic a bit more, other than of course your um, your new, new book um, and the few other uh, references you've mentioned, so I think there's Life in the Age of uh, Drone Warfare by Lisa um, Lisa Parks, and then the Sarah uh, Kreps article. Is there anything else you'd recommend to to our listeners to uh, to get smart on this particular topic?
0: Yeah, so um, great question. And uh, I was really deliberate in this because the scholarship, even just taking a small cross section, uh, can be quite overwhelming. Mm -hmm. But of course, we should be informed consumers. And so I put a lot of thought behind the sort of resources I wanted to recommend to your. Uh, listeners. So the first is, I actually would take a look at some of the work by Sarah Krebs. Mm-hmm. So Truth and Lending. She is my supervisor at Cornell University for this doctorate, sure. but yet is recognized as one of the world's leading experts on drones. And so she has two books that I think would be useful primers for your audience mm-hmm. on the first three waves of drone warfare scholarship. One is called Drones: What Everyone Needs to Know. Mm -hmm. oxford university press 2016 and the other is a co-authored piece with a philosopher named john Cagg. it's a 2014 piece called drone warfare with polity press again these are very good benchmarks for the first three waves of drone warfare scholarship Mm -hmm. second i think that people should invest in understanding what this fourth wave is all about in addition to our work and the sort of shameless self-promotion that we've done today here i guess I would take a look at Jodoc Troy's co edited volume through Routledge, which I think is 2020, called The Transformation of Targeted Killing and in International Order. And so this is a different spin on the implications of armed drones and strike thereof on global order, which is a complement, but shouldn't be confused as one of the same with our edited volume published recently with Routledge as well. And then also, I think that it's really important. Because the debate is, it's been disciplined a lot by philosophers, uh, international lawyers, um, psychologists, cognitive scientists, war ethicists, and and so forth, which is not a bad thing. But a a lot of the claims that I see in the literature are, are really non falsifiable, which is to say, how do we know they're true or not? And so I think there's a lot of cutting edge research being done in journals such as the Journal of Conflict Resolution or research in politics that adopt this notion of causal inference to adjudicate some of the emerging questions we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. And so especially how we understand public attitudes for drone strikes, let's say support and legitimacy, how these two things relate, how they're moderated by international approval, the different mechanisms of morality or law that would further shape outcomes uh, of legitimacy and support. This is really, I think, the next wave of research that will give us pause to reconsider previous analyses that frame the first three waves of drone warfare that were important but yet ought to be refined and updated further just based upon the data that we now have after 20 years of looking at these strikes abroad.
1: That's excellent. Thank you so much. I think, um, I think everyone will have quite a lot to get through in looking, looking at those specific resources as well as just the more general, um, general stuff that's out there on, on this topic. And thanks again for your time this morning, traversing what is a very complex um, complex issue and i um, breaking it down for us and and particularly outlining
0: your um, your
1: research in your recent book
0: thank you so much for having me this podcast was made by the law and the future of war research group at the university of queensland law school a full list of episodes and links to additional
1: material as well as our contact details are available on our website just search
0: for law and the future of war this podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present.